0: This reading is Genesis 4 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold." And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Just looking for a seat. There's plenty around. Uh, My name is Jesse Cromer. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's my pleasure to welcome you this morning. When I was in seminary, um, I had a professor, a preaching professor, who said that every sermon is a wrestling match. Sometimes the scripture wins. And uh, so like Mayweather and McGregor, uh, Genesis 4 and Jesse, I'm rooting for the underdog today. But uh, I want to set your expectations sufficiently low so that I can exceed them. Uh, this, is a tough, this has been a tough passage this week, and it's been a tough passage because I think it says a lot, and uh, I really want to try to portray what God, what I feel like God has put on my heart to share this morning. And so, um, I'd like to pray, and I don't want to just pray because it's a helpful transition uh, into a sermon out of scripture reading, but I actually want to pray, and I'm going to invite you to join me because I, I want God to speak. And so I'm going to ask that you would ask God to speak to you in any format. Maybe even as you heard something read through the scripture, God spoke to you. Uh, perhaps there's a brother or sister that you are in conflict with. And you thought of the name this morning. It just came to you because you saw strife. And so I want to invite you maybe even to write that down. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to join me. And we're going to ask that God speak this morning and speak past all the things that we bring into this space. Uh, in the midst of our busy weeks. So let's do that now. Father, your word speaks for itself, and yet uh, it is challenging to understand at times. We come at it um, 21st century people living in a very specific place with specific uh, culture and specific contexts. We each have individual lives and needs and wants and desires, and yet you know each one of those. You are not so far removed that you cannot. Uh, speak directly to Jesse, or to Keith, or to Beth. Uh, you speak to each one of us because you know us well. And so this morning, I pray that your word would speak, and that, uh, despite my limitations, that you would um, that you would be glorified, that your word would um, awaken our hearts, and that we would be filled with joy. I pray that even in the midst of a of a of a scripture of murder and of lies, that you would give us joy and trust in you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, for the last year and a half, I have spent uh, my life working on becoming the only thing that gets you better conversation in an airplane than being a pastor. I've been working on being an accountant. Uh, if you want to kill a conversation on a golf course about the eighth hole, someone says, So, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. And they go, Oh. All right, and, uh, and all of a sudden, the language changes, and so I thought, well, the only thing that would be more interesting is if they said, what do you do? I'm an accountant. Oh. <laughs> and so, like, this last uh, nine, ten months, I've, I've uh, been working part-time at the church doing the finances. I've, I've, I've done some other finance stuff, and, and one of the great, no joke, one of the great experiences I've had, and I almost used the word joy, it really was a fun process, was doing people's taxes, and uh, it's okay to laugh at that too uh, I liked it, I loved it and I really believe that when you sit down with people and their taxes, they're more honest with you than they are with the pastor because you've got to get naked with your accountant and mostly people just tell the pastor whatever they think they want to tell the pastor, even though I know that it's probably not true and it's, oh this is how it is in our family and I'm like, you're kidding me, right? Like can we just cut through that? Like it's really obvious with an accountant, it's like well, well yeah, this is where it is and I'm like, that's right let's talk, let's get real and I love it because people have this mode of throughout the year trying to get as much money as possible, right? Your goal in your work, in your compensation, is to get as much money as possible throughout the year. And yet when it comes to taxes, you want it to be as little as possible. You go, no, and there's no way I made that much money this year. It has to be less. There's no way. No, it's, that's too much. I didn't make that much. And we have this perception of the tax man as this evil like, boogie monster, right? Coming to take his portion of your assets, coming to take his share of your money. And because my personal and my career and my socioeconomic goals revolve around you people continuing that perception, I'm not gonna convince you that that's any different. <laughs> Continue to think that and pay large sums of monies to professionals to help you deal with your taxes. But the problem is, I think a lot of times we take the same approach to God, especially when we read passages like this about offerings. That God is some kind of boogeyman who's going to come and take his portion from us. That God is this mysterious person who just demands his allotment. And we do some of the same things. We crave crave all these things. We crave time and energy. We want money. We want these different blessings from God uh, during the year, and yet... When it comes to actually bringing an offering, we go, oh, there's just not enough. Oh, there's no way. I just have so little. And yet I've spent the whole day, week, year trying to get more and more and more. What's challenging when we come to, to a passage about offerings is we tend to view them as barbaric. Modern people don't make offerings, right? We can read this as this weird story of sacrifice, murder, curses, and we either defend it as historical or we dismiss it as folklore and we miss out on really what's supposed to be happening in this passage. And we miss out on the fact that this story is so profound in the formation of the people of God, it's meant to infuse every part of our being. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get into it today, but I'm really convinced that Jesus references this story several times in his own teaching. So how does a story about vegetables, angers, anger, and brother killing brother form us as the people of God? Well, I want to answer that question. I want to look at four dynamics this morning that are in the story. I want to look at four different dynamics. And the first dynamic is, is the, maybe the obvious one. It's between Cain and God. And the first question that's probably good to ask is, what is this offering about? Well, this offering is not a sin offering. We're very used to, if you read scripture, people offered, uh, made offerings for sin. But this isn't a sin offering. That hasn't been established and so it's most likely what this offering is is very similar to other offerings to deities where someone comes with some of their produce and they bring an offering to that god in the hopes that that god will bless them and guarantee a secure future for them. It's an offering back to the god who provides. And that seems that again seems primitive to us modern folk, right? Largely because we belo- we've lost this belief that god provides for us. We provide for ourselves. Sure, God provides for me emotionally and in the big picture, but most of us, we're not growing crops. Most of us aren't hoping our herds don't die from a disease. Most of us aren't hoping that our children will live long enough that they will be able to take care of us if we live long enough that we can't do these things for ourselves. No, we've got grocery stores and butchers and 401Ks to do that for us. We provide for ourselves. And Cain and Abel come to acknowledge the one who has provided for them who's in the control of their futures. And the story, this is interesting, the story doesn't say what's wrong with Cain's sacrifice. It only tells us what's right about Abel's. Abel brings the first fruit, the firstborn of his flock. He brings the fat portions, the desirable things. He gives the most precious parts of what he has. Look at verse 3. Uh, we're in Genesis 4 if you have it if you have Bibles I don't know do we have Bibles to pass out sorry I know we usually have them underneath use your app I don't know if we need to do that verse 3 in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering he had no regard so Cain was angry and his face fell the big difference is this Abel's offering is about giving back to Yahweh for what Yahweh has already given him, what Yahweh has already provided. And Cain's offering is in hopes of securing his future. And Scripture doesn't tell us necessarily exactly what's wrong with Cain's offering, but it does tell us what's wrong in his heart. When Yahweh doesn't bless him, when he doesn't get what he wants from God, he becomes angry, and bitterness fills his heart. And we see this in Jesus' day. It's no difference. Jesus deals with people, highly religious people, who are doing very religious things in order to get God to give them a specific future. In order to gain God's favor. And yet, what's in their hearts? Anger, hatred, murder. The ultra-religious people of Jesus' time were filled with anger, hatred, and murder, just like Cain. And Jesus regularly challenges these ultra-religious. And he calls out those who appear to do right, but yet their hearts are, are totally in the wrong. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he says to everybody, Look, these ultra-religious people have told you this, but I'm telling you that. They've told you that if you commit murder, you'll face judgment. But I'm telling you that if you hate your brother, you face judgment. They tell you, do not commit adultery. But I'm telling you that if you lust after another, you've already done it in your heart. And then Jesus goes on to tell a story in Luke 15 which we know as the prodigal son. And it's a story about this, this father who welcomes back this really rebellious, really uh, uh, disrespectful younger brother. Who goes off and he squanders the family money, the family fortune, doing all kinds of evil deeds. And he comes back and the father throws him a party. And we love that story, right? Because it welcomes back the sinner. But as we've talked a lot, that story is really about the older brother who is so angry because look at what I have done, and I haven't been given these things. And it's interesting in that story that he doesn't refer to his brother. He says, this son of yours, he's not my brother. He's your son. Jesus tells the story to rebuke the ultra-religious because of their hearts. They're the same as Cain. They want God to give them something for their piousness. Now, in the last decades of Western Christianity... Uh, we've come back to these stories a lot because we've rejected legalism. If you've been in the church, if you've grown up in the church, I'll say that. I'm I'm turning 40 this year. And I remember growing up, really this emphasis on getting rid of legalism, which was against the ultra-religious, right? This idea that religion, and specifically Christianity, was about, it wasn't about doing all the right things, it was about having the right heart. And so we've thrown off legalism, which is good. Legalism is not a good thing. We're not going to welcome it back. That's not where I'm going. But we threw it off. And we love to to talk about the Cains and the Pharisees, the older brothers. And they're just they're not people we like being around, right? And a lot of us have grown up in churches where that was our experience. A lot of rules, a lot of a lot of critique, a lot of you have to look this way and be this way. And you know, I went to school in the South, I went to a few churches where I'm like, man, this place is crazy. Everybody's dressed a certain way, but everyone talks bad about each other. We've had those experiences. All form but no love. All structure but no heart. We don't want that. But my challenge with you this morning is that your faith cannot be defined by what you're not. Say, your faith cannot be defined by what you're not. And I've seen a lot of Christianity be defined, but it's not legalism, it's just not that. I've seen a lot of people who rightfully rejected that attitude, the the legalism and the strict rule following, uh, but they haven't picked up something else in its place. Being against something isn't the same as being for something. Following Jesus isn't not being like somebody else, it's being like Jesus. So bringing this back to Cain and Abel, where am I going with this, with Cain and his offering? If the overly religious and the older brothers of the world corrupt their offerings to Yahweh by trying to secure their future, then the opposite group, the anti-Cains, the anti-older brothers, the anti-Pharisees, they do the same by pretending that their offerings don't matter. If the ultra-religious group corrupt their offerings by demanding that God do something, then those of us who just bring no offering at all are doing the same thing. We're all trying to secure our future. It's it's not about the offering, it's just about having the right heart. And while the Cain's and the Pharisees, they bring this offering and they want it to guarantee that God will bless them, a lot of us modern people say, well, I can't do without because I need to secure my future. To give up is to be threatened that I won't have enough. To give up and to give to God, he's taking from me and I'm uncomfortable with that idea. I'm okay doing it on my terms and my way, but the thought of coming and bringing something to God, I, I, just, I don't have enough. I don't have enough time, I don't have enough energy, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough, you name it. I don't have the emotional bandwidth to do that. Because I need to make sure that I am taken care of. And so the Cains and the Pharisees that bring their offerings, they're supposed to guarantee their future, the other group does without, and they're both doing the same thing. Now this is not a sermon this morning focused on tithing but I am talking about money. I have seen people in a very short amount of time of doing accounting and looking at people's books, looking at their checkbook, I have seen people have some crazy attitudes towards personal finances. Just insane. And you know, I could go into stories. Fortunately, there's only one, I think there's only one person in here, one family in here whose taxes I did, and they're great. (laughs) I know you're in here, I saw you already. Not talking about you, well done. Listen to who laughed the loudest. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about our time, our energies, our commitments, our possessions, everything we receive from God. I'm talking about our lives being about offerings to God. The way that we view things that come from God. You know, it's interesting is I'm not paid to be at church on Sunday anymore. So, I mean, and that sounds crass, but in a very real sense, it's not a work day for me anymore. It stopped being a work day for me, uh, like, like, you know, almost a year ago. And it is challenging when you're working three jobs and going to grad school, and you've got two kids, and ironically, my kids had fevers this morning. And so it's, it's different to get up on Sunday morning and to say, I want to go spend, not only do I want to get up and deal with bad attitudes, mine, and... My, my four and seven-year-old never have bad attitudes on Sunday. And to do all that and to come on my day off and to spend three hours here worshiping and doing things that I just, man, I'm tired. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to crack open a book on deferred compensation in Section 83 and Section 351, and forming C-corporations and liquidation. And that's going to be my Sunday afternoon. And my thought is, do I really want to spend my Sunday morning doing this? And it has been, it has been in a really good way challenging to get back to that choice. And not just be like, this is what I do for work. That I just show up, right? I'm supposed to. And it's been, it's been healthy to sort of re-engage that challenge of, what am I doing with my time that I want to come, kind of like Pat frame this morning, and bring something to the Lord. And I'm not assuming this morning that I'm talking to people who have an abundance of every category in life. I look out, and I know that so many of us would probably have certain areas of our life where we're like, I legitimately experience an intense deficit in this area. And it's really hard to think about giving out of that. There are some legitimate needs in this room. I'm not talking to a group of people who have abundance of money, abundance of time, abundance of energy. But we're all human, right? We're all God's people. We're all his children. And I think this passage in this way speaks to all of us. So when I suggest that offerings to God matter in this modern day, you might still feel like God's the tax man wanting to come and just take from you. Just take his portion. This is what I want. I'm going to get it. And you really don't have any, you really don't have any say. Right? You don't write the tax code. You're born. On, the day you're born, you enter into the partnership with the U.S. government, and you didn't have a choice about it. One of my professors said, I'm like, that is so True. Whatever you make, here are the rules. Hey, you don't really get to vote on them. And uh, we're going to do this. And sometimes it feels that way with God, right? Like, I didn't get to describe... God, you created me, and, and, and I feel like I'm in a partnership with you that I had no say in. And the question is trust. I don't... I don't trust a lot of people who make decisions about tax law. I imagine I'm not alone. Amen. <laughs> But do you trust God? We, for a while, we would go down, a group of us were going down to Mexico to work with some orphans. And uh, it, it was a, it's a really cool ministry called Genesis Diaz. And I, I worked with them when I was a youth pastor a long time ago in another church. And they do a great job. They, they basically set up camp. They're not an orphanage, but they bless other orphanages in huge ways. And they've actually started an orphanage for some severely handicapped kids, but they put on summer camp, because half the time, these kids literally sit in a concrete compound, you know, 51 weeks out of the year, and then this one week in a the year, they get to go to a camp out in the, out in the wilderness and see cows, for, like, and they'll, you know, and they're going crazy seeing animals, right? And they get to walk out in nature and just be loved on. And so a group of us went down, And Steve Jones helped lead the trip, and Steve even kept leading it. Steve and Camille even kept leading it afterwards. And then I found out that Steve was getting one week of vacation a year. And that's what he was doing with it. And I was blown away. And it wasn't sustainable for his family long term. But to think you get one week of vacation during the year, and you choose to go love on some kids, and there's a bunch of work that went into it, and that's the way you spent your one week of vacation, because you really believed that this was worth blessing other people in Jesus' name. I think that's an offering to God. So what's missing in our hearts that keeps us from being able to have a posture of giving back to God? Could it be that the same issue that plagues both the overly religious and the modern or the under-religious, perhaps, to give them a name, is the same thing? And I think it's the same thing, and here's what it is. I think that there's a lack of trust that God is good. I think the same thing plagues both. A lack of trust that God is good. Both groups doubt that God is good. And so they either demand that God respond a certain way if they do everything right. God, you have to do this because I've done this. Or they take it upon themselves to take care of themselves. I got it. Don't ask anything of me. I will deal with it myself. I have to make sure I have enough. I need to take care of me because no one else will. But neither of these ways are actually reality. Neither of these ways are how God works. Scripture doesn't say the Lord gives loves a religious giver. And Scripture also doesn't say God helps those who help themselves, right? Neither of those are in Scripture. Both of these paths lead only to deep frustration. And this is important. They ultimately lead to bitterness, anger, and I'm going to use the word a lot this morning of resentment towards God. They ultimately lead to resentment towards God, which leads me to the second dynamic which is Cain and his brother. Cain is bitter at God, but he can't do anything towards God. God isn't standing right there in front of him. God isn't next to him where he can fight with God. But he's angry at God, so what does he do? He kills the image of God, which is his brother. We just got out of Genesis 1 and 2. It is extremely clear to the people of God that every other human being is an image bearer of God. And here we see the first person destroy that image. It is a revolt against God. God. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The first murder. And what's interesting, we won't get into it, but what's interesting is it spirals out of control To later in the chapter somebody else kills people and he actually boasts about it. If Cain is avenged, then I'm even more. It's a scary condition of the human heart that they become destroyers of the image of God. Resentment has to have a focal point. Resentment always has a focal point. There's something that it fixes on. And it robs us of our ability to receive the good that God might have for us. And the challenge is when God's good and our good look very different. Which is something every one of us has to wrestle with in our own lives, right? There are many times that God's good has not been what my good looks like. And I become resentful and angry and the scary thing is, how many relationships are destroyed and at the root of them, if you really think about it, think about conflict you've had with other people, how many of those you can trace back to some form of resentment being at the, at the root of that. And if we doubt that God is good, then we are left to deal with our own lack of control over our lives. Can't control governments or taxes or my boss or my customers or my competition. Can't control that this person doesn't love me back that my neighbor or friend or coworker makes more money than I do, lives in a nicer home than I do, goes on better vacations than I do, can't control my kids and how successful, impressive, beautiful they are, although I have watched as a youth pastor an insane amount of parents try. So many things in this world threaten our sense of security. You folks who would classify yourself as the older demographic in the room, you want to know one of the large distinctions that's in the room, is there's a lot of young people who wake up every morning and I'll say young I'll put myself in the category even though turning 40 it's just hopeful wishful thinking right I'm never going to never going to move out of the younger group but there's a lot of people who wake up every morning these days with a lot of anxiety that the world is not safe deep deep anxiety deep anxiety and all you have to do is click on newyorktimes.com to understand why nuclear war Icebergs are breaking off, we're all going to drown. I mean, I can go on and on and on, right? Politics, famine, all kinds of things. There's always a reason to be afraid that the future is not safe. That you're going to be worse off. And it becomes easy for resentment to flood in. Resentment always destroys. That's the second thing. Resentment always destroys. Resentment towards God that he hasn't done what we want to do, but he isn't here to be mad at. So because resentment needs a focus, and because it destroys, it opens the door for sin to enter in. And that's the third dynamic. So we've got Cain and God, Cain and, and, and his brother, and then we have Cain and sin. And God gives Cain a very uh, poignant warning. He says, be careful, it's at, it's at the door, and its desire is against you. And Cain has an option of whether or not to let that sin in. He has an option of whether or not he will respond in sin, and it is a real struggle. And it's a, I think it's a warning to us that we have an option to deal with sin. And it's not one we're going to get into hugely this morning. Um, Cain succumbs to it, and he destroys the image of God. And when, when God comes to him, he says, where is your brother Abel? He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And that question runs throughout Scripture that question goes throughout scripture. Am I my brother's keeper? Go back to Luke 15 with the brothers. Who should have gone after the younger brother, the older? Think about the Good Samaritan. Am I my brother's keeper? And the reader of the text should go, yes, you are. You are absolutely your brother's keeper. It is a, it is a rhetorical question that is the point of the passage. You are your brother's keeper. Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and the second commandment is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Resentment and sin does not allow us to do either. It breaks both of those abilities, destroys those abilities. Recapping a little bit, Cain doubts that God is good in what he has provided and will provide Cain. Cain allows resentment and sin to enter into the equation until the ultimate destruction takes place, murder. And this is an interesting one. The fourth dynamic is between Cain and his work. Look at verse 10. God says, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Remember what, remember what Cain does, right? He, he grows vegetables. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, on the land. We have this gift of work. And I'm not talking a job that's 9 to 5. I'm talking about all the things we do. Fatherhood, motherhood, all kinds of... uh, We're neighbors. We are citizens. We are brothers and sisters. We are sons and daughters. We are accountants and pastors and teachers and construction workers. You name it, right? We do these things and they're our vocation. But when we allow sin and resentment and we doubt God's goodness, those things become amazingly frustrated. If you weren't resentful, if you trusted God's goodness, how much more would you enjoy those things that are set before you each day? If you woke up and said, God is good, what he has provided for me this morning is good, even if there's challenges, how much more would your day have a positive outlook as you start it? Not every day. We don't have to have bubbly feelings all the time. But I think from a general perspective, most of you would agree that if I could, if I could have a deep confidence that the things I go through, the challenges I go through, that God is in them and he is good, I can face them in a lot better way. This idea of doubting God's goodness it runs throughout scripture. And it sounds cliché, but mostly because we've put it on like Hallmark cards and we've it in Kirk Cameron movies. <laughs> and I mean that very negatively towards Kirk. <laughs> we haven't really wrestled with the deep biblical truth. And that that it's a, it's a deep challenge. It is a challenge to the core of who we are, and when we make it superficial, then yeah, most of us go, please don't... I've got someone in my life that every time something bad happens, oh, well, we just have to trust the Lord, and I just want to... Shut up. Like Shut up. I don't need to hear cliches. Like Trusting God's goodness is not spouting cliches. You look at the Psalms, you look at the laments, you look at the deep, deep things of Scripture. That's not cliches. But God's goodness is in them, and a belief in God's goodness. And if you look at the story of Scripture where people have failed, they have doubted God's goodness. When Adam and Eve listened to the serpent, they doubted God's goodness. When the Israelites groaned in the desert, they doubted God's goodness. When they refused to enter the promised land because it was too scary, they doubted God's goodness. When they worshipped the Baals and the Asherah poles, they doubted God's goodness. When they were taken off to captivity in Babylon, they doubted God's goodness. When they came back but were too afraid to rebuild Jerusalem, again, they doubted God's goodness. And Paul deals with this as he's speaking to believers in Ephesus. He says, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. What are the flaming darts of the evil one? Why is the shield that protects you faith? Because the flaming darts are to get you to doubt that God is good. Scripture is filled throughout with the challenge for the, the people of God to trust that God is good and God is for them, and he is with them. And when we believe that God is good, it allows us to be true worshipers. To bring an offering because we have joy and thankfulness. And if God has done anything in Jesus Christ, it is He has proven that He is good and He is for us and He is with us. Amen? Amen. Can we trust that God is good? I want to read to you a psalm that you know well. And someone read it to me this week. And I want you to read it in the context of trusting God's goodness. Again, I'll go over here. I want you to read it in the context of hearing God be good, believing that God is good, even in the midst of challenges. The Lord is the one pasturing me. I will never go without. He will always invite me to stretch out in pastures full of green shoots. He will not fail to guide me to a place of rest where the water is at peace. He will bring my life back to me. He will lead me along the wagon tracks of fair dealing, He would not be who he is if he did otherwise. I tell you, though I have cause to walk through the valley of deadly darkness, there is nothing fearsome there, nothing for me to fear, because of you, you there with me, your weapon and your crook. I see them, and I know I am safe. You arrange a feast on a table where I sit, though my enemies loom on the other side. You refresh my head by bathing it in oil. You fill my cup again and again. Certainly goodness and unfailing mercy will chase after me everywhere I go as long as I exist. And I will live in the Lord's house all my days. Praise be to God.